0: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Frieden bluma Or about his new book, Black Boys Apart, Rachel, Uplift, and Respectability in All-Male Public Schools. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To get us started, can you tell us about yourself and also how this book came about for you?
1: Uh, Sure. So I am an associate professor of sociology at Tufts University, um, and I do uh, research and teach in the areas of gender and masculinity, um, education, children and youth, and sociological and feminist theory. And prior to starting graduate school, uh, I taught uh, sixth grade in a public school in Philadelphia, an experience that inspired me to p- uh, pursue a career in sociology, um, and specifically um, on research on inequality in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, And sort of as a result of uh, those experiences, I I was broadly interested at the start of my graduate career uh, in questions about um, access and inclusion um, and exclusion for Black youth in schools. Um, And I think at that time, I was much more attuned to issues of racial and social class segregation and uh, inequality. but once in graduate school, I, you know, had a chance to, to kind of rethink about my work uh, through the prism of, of gender. Um, and my, uh, my dissertation chair, uh, Barry Thorne, wrote a, a really great ethnography on how schools separate boys and girls at an early age and how these um, sort of gender divisions take shape over time. Um, and I sort of blended uh my interests in kind of gender separation in schools with uh, my longer standing uh, research interests on racial and social class inequality and kind of de facto racial and class segregation. Um, and so all boys um, uh, public education was just uh, sort of the perfect uh, meeting place between uh, those uh, various interests. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. So can you first start off by telling us a little bit about your methods and the two schools that you use in your sample?
1: Yeah, so um, I spent uh, one full year uh, conducting qualitative research at two all boys um, uh, public high schools, Um, one uh, which I call Perry High School in the book. Um, So all the the names in the book are pseudonyms. so Perry High School was a combined middle and high school, but uh, the community referred to it as a high school, and I do the same in the book. Um, and that was a traditional um, uh, public school. Mm-hmm. And um, in the same city, um, which I call Morgan, um, the city of Morgan was another um, um, all boys uh, public school. But this one was a charter school. Um, And, uh, so I spent 11 continuous months just observing, um, people at the two schools. So, uh, you know, classrooms, assemblies, um, uh, games, extracurricular activities, um, and also interviewed, um, uh, 150 total people. So students, parents, um, teachers, administrators, um, I had a chance to speak with a couple of, um, uh, middle school principals and CEOs that had sent their, uh, graduates to these high schools. Um, and also, um, um, I had a chance to interview one school district official, um, and, um, uh, the data for the book also included, uh, just, uh, an analysis of, uh, school and school district, um, um, documents. And, um, I think, uh, you know, it just it, crucially, my kind of methodological guide for the book is what's called the extended uh, case method. Um, and uh, so in the words of uh, the architect uh, behind the framework, Michael Bervoy, um, what my project is concerned with is not sort of statistical significance. So I'm, I'm not really out to say sort of conclusively what works and doesn't work in these schools, but instead um, I'm, I'm really aiming for kind of societal significance. Um, you know, I recognize full well that the two schools aren't necessarily representative of all boys, of all all boys schools nationwide. Um, so I'm not out to make any generalizations, but um, you know, I just wanted to show that um, what, you know, what's happening in these two schools can tell us, um, you know, a lot, uh, generally about, um, black education, um, black empowerment and self-determination, um, sort of the rise of, uh, neoliberal ideologies and black education. that's really what the book is aiming for. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm interested in, you know, less in sort of judging the successes of one school against the failures of another. And, um, you know, I, I say in the book that, you know, I think we, have you know pretty good evidence of what does work in schools you know resources strong leadership you know caring staff members a rigorous uh, academic curriculum but these are key ingredients that aren't at all just specific to um, any one type of school you know you can find these things in uh, co-ed or single sex um, schools mm-hmm. um, and yeah and so uh, um, in addition to um, that methodology, you know my, my work was also really strongly inspired by a lot of feminist work um, and uh, the work of uh, childhood and youth um, scholars who are out to sort of show that young people are both I really um, love this phrase are both uh, beings and becomings. you know they're beings in their own right, and they're also sort of becomings on certain life trajectories, and I really um, was hoping. Um, with a book um, to speak with as many, you know, young uh, men as I, as I could have uh, at the two schools to see what they thought about why in this day and age uh, they're sort of targeted for, um, um, you know, help and correction by, um, by educational
0: reformers. Great. So in the introduction, you situate your book in what you call power, privilege, and politics um, in order to understand race and masculinity. So can you set the stage for us, theoretically speaking?
1: Yeah. So um, I think, you know, uh, most kind of generally there are two things that I'd like for readers to understand about um, the education of of young Black men. and the first is that, you know, these schools and other um, schools today are sort of at a the, the, the intersection of this really um, volatile uh, sort of meeting place of, of markets and democratic politics. Um, and the relationship between the two is one that's, you know, uh, uh, racialized, gendered, and classed. Mm-hmm. Um, And I also, um, in the book, am am really hoping to show how today's schools are are really a a product of, um, you know, a legacy of schooling that dates back to, all the way back to the post-Civil War reconstruction period. Um, And so, in addition to drawing out the kind of volatile relationship between markets and politics, um, I was hoping to situate today's schools in a much longer history of, of targeting um, black boys uh, for educational reform. Mm-hmm. And uh, relatedly, I, I think what, what the book um, sets out to do is to sort of reframe how we think about reform. And I think, um, you know, reform is just a big buzzword um, in contemporary public education. And I think um, at least, you know, as, as I, Seen in the book, it's you know these schools are less about reforming schools and more about um, sort of reforming black male character. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, and I can explain more in a bit, that the the schools themselves um, aren't really changing or innovating so much as they're sort of emulating things that have been in place for um, you know for decades and for centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the schools themselves actually aren't changing very much at all. Um, but what, um, what is sort of really consistent is this need to turn to, um, you know, different um, institutions and social domains, such as schools, um, the criminal justice system, families, um, and other social spheres um, to reform um, Black men. Mm-hmm. Um, and... To uh, build on that idea, um, a, a, a main I think takeaway from the book is that um, you know what has sort of produced these two schools is a, a, a reemergence of a black respectability politics, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in sort of thinking about how um, you know we could talk about it today on the podcast. I I actually think it was sort of on full display over the weekend at Aretha Franklin's funeral. Mm. Um, uh, did you have a chance to,
0: no, I've only seen memes.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many good memes out there. And so, but there, are, there are more than just the memes. So, um, <laughs> but you know, so a lot happened, but one thing that I think that's really, um, relevant, um, for, for my book is, um, the eulogy was given by, uh, this Reverend Jasper Williams. And I think it really, um, sort of distilled a black respectability politics into its like most basic, um, uh, ingredients. And so, um, on Twitter, I, I noticed that, uh, people, uh, were, were just strongly criticizing, um, Williams for peddling respectability politics, which is the idea that, um, you know, change and progress are a function of reforming one's character. Um, and so Williams used his podium to promote, um, a really conservative sort of viewpoint, um, that, uh, for example, criticized the black lives matter movement, um, said that only black men and not women can raise boys, um. And he even went so far as to say that a child born into a household where the father isn't the provider, and so he's speaking here about Black families, uh, will face, quote, an abortion after birth. Um, And so I think what uh, Black Boys Apart is showing is that in a neoliberal era um, with this sort of decisive turn to the market for answers when democratic Institutions can't provide those answers. That it's sort of, um, it's sort of allowed a black respectability politics to to gain momentum um, because neoliberalism and, and a uh, black respectability politics share an assumption, which is that um, an individual is responsible for his or her success and um, ultimately um, has only him or herself to blame for for, for failures. Um, and so I'm, I'm, really building on the work of, you know, people like the political scientist, Frederick Harris, who's, um, you know, uh, who, who says that respectability politics has become a common sense in the black community. And there are a lot of examples of this, um, um, most famously uh, Bill Cosby at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education famously, uh, you know, reprimanded black youth for their, um, dress and for not speaking proper English. Um, But it's an ideology that's also taken hold in um, more progressive circles as well. And so Barack Obama even has been uh, criticized for kind of peddling a respectability politics that says that, um, that, you know, blames, um, you know, black men for not being good fathers and so on. Um, And, um, you know, situating today's all boys, public schools and this long sort of very, um, complicated and in many ways, destructive, um, legacy of, of, um, um, you know, blaming the, the, uh, the failures of blacks on their failure to reform their character. Um, and with respect to my schools, it, it's, it's, I think, important to tease out too, uh, uh, dimensions, a class dimension and a, and a gender dimension to it So the class dimension is that, um, you know, these politics are really elitist as um, more well to do and upwardly mobile folks can kind of wag their finger at the poor for having bad habits and morals and saying that that's why, you know, um, you're not doing well in life. Um, but it also has a really strong gender dimension to it in that it's both um, heteronormative and patriarchal. And assumes that black men should be the leaders of the black community and 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 households, and and um, suggests that black boys are more worthy of assistance than than black girls. Um, And so this combination of of neoliberalism and a black respectability politics have sort of taken hold. I argue um, at the T schools in my study, Um, and that's uh, that's one of the the, the key takeaways from uh, from the text. Um, the last thing I'll add here is that, um, um, I sort of highlight two camps, um, one that supports, um, these schools and another that strongly challenges these, um, these schools. And the first is a black nationalist tradition, uh, which is, um, and has been skeptical of efforts at integration, um, in public schools and instead uh, promotes the idea of black self determination and the right of black um, communities to create their own spaces in the face of a racist society, um, and within this black nationalist tradition, um, and you know here building on the the really great work uh, by people such as uh, Lisa Stolberg, um, Mary Patillo, uh, Eric Rose, and others, who've shown that. Um, you know black communities have often since um, uh, the Civil War sort of fought for where and how their kids will learn and haven't always been against integration but instead trying to create black controlled educational spaces that are uh, affirming for um, uh, for their young people um, and I think the challenge to the black nationalism is a, is a black feminist tradition that Asks why black boys are held up as sort of the paradigmatic victims of racial oppression. Um, And here, the idea is that, um, you know, sort of a black black feminist perspective is highly skeptical of granting um, um, gender privilege to black boys um, with the thought that doing so will help to liberate the entire. uh, black community, um, and so black feminists have 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 strongly challenged these schools by saying that while black nationalism has a lot of uh, liberatory potential, it's it's traditionally relied on a sexist politics, um, and so my book is is trying to show how um, you know the effort to to achieve um, uh, racial liberation uh, may come at the expense. Um, of black girls, um, but sort of um, uh, sort of hold up black boys in a way that um, uh, that that sort of uh, uh, splinters the black um, uh, community. Um, and so, I think that's that's uh, those are the main sort of theoretical kind of components to uh, to the book.
0: So, something you briefly mentioned was in terms of reform, school reform. And so, can you sort of give us an overview of the stories of how these schools um, became, especially in light of things like No Child Left Behind and privatization of education?
1: So, I, I um, really set out to do this in the in the in the first chapter of the book, where I um, explain you know how it is that uh, these two schools, Perry High School and, and Northside Academy, uh, came to be in the first place, and um so the privatization of public schooling i think is part of a larger story about the rise of neoliberalism that's impacted all spheres of social life um from education to um the criminal justice system to healthcare um and in education at least it has its roots um in uh the presidency of Ronald Reagan um but it's been taken up enthusiastically, I think, across the political divide, too, including in President uh, Bill Clinton's administration. In um, beginning in the 90s, um, so, uh, President Clinton's administration had uh, what was called Goals 2000, um, an initiative that really um, uh, is seen as the predecessor to No Child Left Behind. Um, no Child Left Behind, um, which um, came into law in 2008. Two is is what really sort of codified um uh neoliberalism into educational policy and um in uh the city of morgan so the site um uh, uh the two schools at the heart of my study um, um over 15 years ago the state uh, intervened and took over the school district and and so the writing was on the wall, and the message here was that uh, the state had lost, um, you know, any faith in the city to be able to run its own school, um, its own schools, and um, in short order, sort of completely restructured the city so that um, a small um, committee was in charge with um, running. Um, uh, with running the school district, and you know, this wasn't a democratic uh, process at all. Um, and and uh, the, the small committee said that what we need is to give more autonomy uh, to local schools. Um, you know, the, the school district is too large, too bureaucratic. Nothing can get done, and um, the only solution is to is to invite um reformers into the city and to give them space autonomy um and time to come up with uh solutions to address uh, you know the 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 different um ills uh, affecting especially black youth um in the city and i found that um sort of privatization took five forms in the city of morgan the first was um with standardization um and here, you know, educational standards became the norm, but the idea was that the same rules would apply to everyone. And, um, um you know, we need to be able to measure whether our kids are making progress, but also if schools are making progress. And so, you know, they, the city introduced school report cards to be able to, um, you know, show parents which schools were succeeding and which ones were failing. Uh, the second, um, way was through innovation and so innovation i think alongside reform is just a huge buzzword in Mm -hmm. contemporary uh, public education but the idea here is that supporters of um, privatization believe that change and innovation are just really hard to come by in large democratically run institutions that you know things just happen too slowly and so you need to give Local schools, um, the autonomy, the freedom to be able to run the schools um, as they wish. Um, The third way is through accountability. Um, So, uh, you know, given standardization and and innovation, um, uh, you know, charters are restricted to these short term contracts um, and they need to show, like, every couple of years that they're working. And so there are ways that we can hold institutions and people accountable if they don't, if they aren't, they're not meeting, um, uh, certain standards. Um, and the fourth way was through competition. And I think this was a really, um, um, sort of important story, especially at, at one of the two schools in in, in the book at North side Academy. And so, you know, entrepreneurs came in sort of competed for these bids, um, Uh, The the school district just invited um, these educational management organizations or EMOs, to come in. And these are private for-profit firms that contract with uh, local districts to to take over schools. Um, But I think that when it was trying to show too that on the ground, there's a lot of competition between parents um, and between schools. Um, And finally, the, the... the last dimension, um, sort of the evidence of the rise of neoliberal ideologies in the city of Morgan, was through surveillance, um, and this has gone sort of hand in hand with the rise of, mm-hmm. um, you know, mass incarceration and in a carceral state. Um, the idea is that you know a, a state can uh, save money by recruiting institutions such as schools um, to to, to take part in surveillance efforts. And, and, you know, around this time, we see the rise of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, no excuses and zero tolerance kinds of schools. Um, the city of Morgan, uh, uh, famously contracted with, um, a private organization to run these schools for its most, um, you know, um, at risk and dangerous youth, um, and so in those, uh, those five ways, I think um, uh, the city of Morgan was really sort of um, taken over by the logic of, of the market. Um, and uh, at Perry High School, um, so Perry High School, uh, um, again, was um, uh, a combined middle uh, school and high school. Um, and it was run by an educational management organization, which I call Excel. Um, and Excel came in and, um, decided to make, um, the school all boys and converted, a, a school down the road, which had also previously been co-ed, um, into Perry High's sister school. And so there was a school for the girls and a school for the boys, um, But this was done, I think, um, uh, without a lot of um, planning and consultation with local stakeholders and parents. And so um, what I show in the book is that, you know, the things sort of quickly fell into disarray. Um, And given that the school um, wasn't doing so well, um, of the five sort of market logics, the one that really, um, um, sort of took over here was surveillance and the, the school, um, hired a former police officer to, to be its principal. And, you know, he was out just to, to, uh, to hand out law and order in the school and, um, um, uh, kind of implemented this broken windows policy that was trying to crack down on lower level offenses. Um, um, in order to deter uh, more serious uh, student transgressions. Um, and the idea here was that, you know, boys and young men of color really needed strict discipline if they wanted um, to succeed. Um, and so that's really the story um, about the early years at, at, at Perry High School. So long before um, I came uh, to study the school and... Um, Northside Academy was a charter school that uh, opened um, several several years after Perry High School. And um, um, Northside um, was a school that uh, at, at first was actually um, contested by a lot of um, uh, f- uh, feminist organizations. And so places like the National Organization for Women and the ACLU and other institutions, organizations, I'm sorry, um, argued that, um, you know, the school um, was not, uh, was illegal um, because uh, it came at the expense of girls. Um, But uh, Northside Academy um, of the five uh, market logics really was playing up um, a unique way of sort of thinking about innovation as I argue in the book. And so um, it drew inspiration from three different um, uh, role model schools and the first was uh, the Boston Latin school. And so the school founder um, you know, told me he had a no Eureka mo- mm-hmm. moment when he learned about um, the Boston Latin school and thought that Latin would be a great way to sort of give his school um, uh, credibility and legitimacy And, uh, the second, um, um, the second, uh, role model school was, uh, a school I called Crane Academy, which was a local elite all boys school. And, um, so the school founder was out to convince the school district that his all boys school could work for black boys because it would be modeled after, you know, um, a school with a track record of, of excellence. Um. And the third, um, role model school for Northside Academy was, uh, Dunbar high school, um, in Washington, DC, um, in Dunbar high school, which, um, um, which opened in just after this, the civil war ended was the nation's first elite black school and it had this all-star teaching roster, um, Um, but it was out to really groom the next generation of Black leaders. Um, And so what I was trying to do um, with Northside Academy in this chapter was to say that although it was using the language of innovation, um, I think uh, that innovation uh, was sort of an innovation in a really restricted sense. It may have been really different from other schools in in the city, Um, but in very important ways, it was just emulating or copying, um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, things about schools that had been around for much longer, um, and had track records of success. And so, um, you know, I, I sort of, I pose the question, how, how different are these schools really, if they're just trying to, you know, draw inspiration from, um, uh, from these esteemed... Um, in many cases, private uh, private schools.
0: Yeah, a- another idea that comes up in the introduction and then when you're sort of elaborating on the schools is framing uh, some of the issues in terms of Du Bois and his idea of racial uplift. So I was hoping you could elaborate sort of on that idea, but also what it meant for what you were seeing in the schools.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, So racial uplift, um, and the history of Black politics is, you know, a, a, a term with a really checkered um, history. Um, so during the Reconstruction period, um, when freed blacks had made real gains, um, the notion—I'm sorry—the notion of racial uplift was something that was really positive, and it was associated with the idea that um, you know education could be a vehicle to full equality for blacks, um, but there was this vicious backlash um, during the Jim Crow era, which nurtured a second form of uplift. And here, um, this is an uplift that, you know, resembles uh, respectability politics. And so blacks now are tasked with lifting up themselves. Um, And so we see the emergence of a kind of a self-help respectability politics, um, which stresses ideas of um, kind of self-reliance and reforming one's character to be, uh, morally upright, uh, thrifty, obedient, and so on, um, and I think it came with uh, sort of uh, an admirable desire to reject um, stereotypes of blacks, but um, it it really aggravated uh, class tensions within the black community, um, and I, I was really inspired um, by Du Bois's. Um, work on gender and education in the book um, and beginning with his notion of racial uplift so Du Bois famously proclaimed um, in his early work that the black community could only be saved by its exceptional men so a talented tenth as he called it Um, and it's an ideology that suggests that it's the responsibility of an elite leadership to help the black masses who can't help themselves Um, and, you know, with respect to Du Bois, what, um, uh, the, uh, Black Boys Apart, my book is trying to show is that, um, reformers, all kinds of educational reformers, um, um, draw inspiration from Du Bois and, you know, to, to, to use the language of, um, the, uh, the scholar, uh, Roderick Ferguson, um, uh, people cite it to Du Bois. People are constantly drawing inspiration for Du Bois, but in ways that sort of reinforce their own political commitments um, and the way I saw this playing out the book in the book is um, sort of a talented tenth um, thesis taking hold in different ways at mm. the two schools um, and um, drawing on the work of another um, um, a critical scholar really admire Joy James, um, uh, uh, sort of reformers and others are, are sort of freezing notions about Du Bois. Um, and the, the book is trying to help sort of thaw these notions and say, maybe we shouldn't rely on a talented 10th ideology to support all boys' education when other kinds of um, ideas from Du Bois are much more progressive. Um, and democratic, but I can, I can return to that at the end of the podcast. Um, so, um, uh, just, just really, uh, quickly, um, uplift sort of at, at, Perry high school took place, um, um, in the form of, um, a black male leadership and, uh, the school was really concerned with surrounding the boys with as many, um, Uh, positive Black role models as possible. And so the entire leadership, save for one woman, was a Black man. Um, The school district helped recruit a number of um, former administrators who had been principals themselves to be assistant principals at the school. And so there was a group of about 10 men at the school who I saw who were really sort of uh, uh, kind of pulling the strings and determining um, the agenda for the entire school. And, um, at, at, at Perry high school uplift was really about, um, you know, sort of three things, two things, which didn't work so well and a third, I think, which had much more promise. Um, and the first was what I call a, a, a um, a black male speaker series and the boys were constantly, um, you know, being sent to assemblies and other meetings where, um, Uh, black men from the local community and from outside of the city were invited in to sort of share stories about how they had made it. And, you know, if they had made it, then the boys at Perry High School can make it. Uh, But this really um, was met with a lot of resistance from the boys who were sort of offended by the message they were getting from uh, these older men they didn't know. Um, um, A second... um, way was through uh, uh classroom lessons and these were sort of hit or miss but there are many opportunities for the boys to talk about um kind of black identity black male identity and in black male empowerment um in the school and to talk about things like the election of barack obama and what that meant um you know, there are a lot of discussions in school about uh, policing and surveillance and how um, you know, these things harmed, uh, black men. Um, and a third way, uh, was through a new, um, um, mentoring program. And I think of the three, it held the most promise because it, um, was, uh, a, a, you know, a sort of a long-term, um, commitment. Um, uh, but it brought together a lot of, um, a lot of men, um who were committed to working with boys um for the long term so meeting with boys um uh, during school primarily after school um but you know crucially again you know the 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 group of people who was really sort of leading the way here was um uh, this really strong black male leadership and um you know it was something that really was just you know, unquestioned that the, the school absolutely had to have a strong black, uh, leadership because what the boys needed, um, were, were, uh, sort of visions and models, uh, for success, uh, were other, uh, black men. And, um, uplift at Northside Academy took on a different form. Um, and instead of a strong black male leadership, um, it promoted, um, Uh, strong relationships among the boys and Mm -hmm. so a brotherhood as I call it in the book. Um, And the basic idea here was that the school didn't think that um, or certainly not to the extent that it, uh, that it was the case at Perry high school. Um, The boys didn't need to be taught and mentored by black men um, because these were black boys who were being groomed um, to uh, eventually, you know, leave the school in the city and be successful in white-dominated institutions. And so they needed to be able to uh, to work with um, and sort of engage with um, uh, people of all um, of all uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and a related idea was that uh, because the school was was really concerned with finding the best. Uh, teaching talent, um, it, you know, uh, this could be um, a person of any gender or race, so long as it was someone with, you know, really good academic credentials and could, um, uh, could teach uh, the boys a, a classical curriculum when grounded in Latin um, that you didn't need to just, you know, uh, promote the idea that it, uh, a black man needed to be at the front of the classroom. Um, and, uh, so with respect to uplift, and I think this kind of links to something at the end of the book, but, um, at Harry high school, uh, although there wasn't a strong brotherhood, um, the boys were being groomed to one day be what I call, um, kind of heroic family men. The idea was that they needed to um, sort of survive and stay strong now because they would be called on eventually to take care of their community um, and other fictive kin. Um, while uh, the young men at Northside Academy um, had a really strong brotherhood and they were, they were tasked with looking out for one another now so they could eventually succeed and make it out of the community Um, and go on to be leaders of industry. Um, These are people who, you know, the the, um, terms like success, I'm sorry, phrases like success in the global economy was really important at a school like Northside Academy. Um, You know, the school was really trying to ask the boys to reject their local community and see that there were threats at every turn, and the boys needed to look after one another because they were, um, you know, the, the city's exceptional young men and they needed to be able to get out in order to be successful on their own terms one day. Um, And so that's how I saw racial uplift um, sort of playing out differently at the two schools.
0: So then you move into a discussion of what you call contradictory discourses. So this is in terms of justifying separating boys and girls. Can you tell us more and give us some examples of those that you found in the schools?
1: Yeah. um, So, um, you know, I, I, in, in chapter two, I was just trying to kind of answer um, or, or uh, to, 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 to describe the answers to the question, the most basic question um, I asked, which was why separate boys and girls in schools? Um, and, you know, the, 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 the kind of common sense response, most popular response was that boys and girls uh, distract one another. Um, and Elizabeth Woody, who um, it's done really great work on all, um, on single sex education calls this a discourse of distractions. And what I'm trying to do in this chapter was, uh, to show or to complicate this discourse and to say that a respectability politics plays a really important role, um, in these discourses. Um, and so when I, you know, was talking with people, I would find that You know, they said, actually, I'm not sure if it's always the case that boys and girls distract one another. Um, It could be something really perilous. And so a second discourse was a discourse of um, teenage pregnancy, where here um, boys and girls were seen as really kind of dangerous threats to one another because um, it eventually would uh, lead to um, um, uh, young women being moms and boys being absent fathers. Um, in the lives of their children, and so the school was really trying to, um, to be careful about this discourse, um, and uh, but what it what it really shows and how respectability politics plays out here is that the schools are kind of perceiving girls in a certain way. These were, you know, dangerous, deviant, bad girls um and schools both schools were constantly saying that the boys need to avoid these girls at all costs and that these girls could kind of derail um the boys from Mm -hmm. a positive future and then there were uh a couple of more discourses um at work this the the next one was a discourse of competition um and here uh both people at perry high school and northside academy um viewed Uh, girls a stiff academic competition and that's why they needed to um be in their own school and so because you know boys their self-esteem plummeted because they saw the girls as being smarter and so on um and but the 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 image of the girl here the black girl was very different and and this was a respectable rule-abiding good girl um and uh, the next discourse was a, what I call a discourse of motivation. Um, and in this discourse, uh, so respectable gentlemen and students are, um, aren't actually distracted by girls, but they're actually motivated to impress girls academically. And um, although this was a discourse that resonated with both Um, with boys at both schools, it, it, it really was, um, um, was more at, 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 uh, at work at Northside Academy where, you know, a lot of the students told me, actually, I, when, whenever girls are in the building or women are in the building, that's when the boys are on their best behavior because they want to be seen as studious, respectable, um, uh, uh, gentlemen with you know a, a a good head on their shoulders, um, and uh, so all these kind of discourses were at play at the schools. Um, and the last one was a um, uh, a gay school discourse, which played out uh, differently at the two schools and at Perry High School. Um, um, so the the idea behind the gay school was that the, the, the boys believe that an all-boys school Mm -hmm. uh, both attracted boys who were gay to the school um, and also um, this all-male environment um, had the potential to turn boys gay who were otherwise straight. Um, And so at Perry High School, um, this uh, gay school discourse um, took on a really kind of troubling form because it uh, linked up with the school's reputation as um, a prison. And so it stoked what I found, these really um, uh, sort of troubling anxieties around uh, same-sex um, acts and same-sex desire in prisons. Um, and the boys, for example, would joke about uh, prison rape um, and say that, you know, because Perry High School resembled a prison and now is all boys you know, what happens um, in these spaces is that, um, you know, uh, certain men and boys pray after weaker men and boys. And so this really taboo topic of, uh, of uh, prison rape um, was expressed through jokes. Um, and at Northside Academy, the gay school discourse took on a really different form. And so because these were young men who wore, uh ties and blazers and were respectable um they thought that other people in the community um view them as being totally emasculated that these were boys who because they were north side nerds weren't able to defend themselves and they were just weaklings and the boys at north side thought that others in the community saw them as sort of easy prey and that they could be um sort of attacked um um, on the streets. Um, and just sort of in conclusion here, I th- uh, while the discourses vary, I think really um, an important sort of thing to keep in mind was uh, mm-hmm. that they all shared an assumption of heteronormativity. And so the idea that, you know, boys and girls were, were different. And, um, uh, but also that respectability politics played a really important role. Uh, and whether, you know, the, 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 girl that the schools had in mind, uh, was a good girl, um, uh, respectable girl or a bad girl or a deviant girl. Um, and so that was, uh, what I was trying to accomplish in, in the second chapter of the book.
0: So you also discussed the idea of a hidden curriculum. Um, and so maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you explain what that is and how you saw it play out in your schools?
1: Uh, A hidden curriculum is just uh, the idea that, you know, in addition to an explicit formal academic curriculum, um, that there um, are unspoken rules and norms that create advantages for some students and disadvantage other students. And uh, building on this idea, um, I show in the book that um, all boys uh, schools are really drawing on a tradition of educating uh, the head, the hand, and the heart. Um, and this is building on the work of Martin Summers. Um, it's the idea with the head is that uh, schools should try to um, you know, implement a, a sort of a classic liberal arts education. Uh, the hand refers to teaching, um, to offering vocational or an industrial education. And the heart refers to educating uh, the character of Black youth. Um, and so just really quickly at, at Northside, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the school's uh, formal um, academic curriculum was grounded in Latin. Um, but the uh, sort of the hidden mm-hmm. curriculum was that it was trying to discipline the minds and bodies of the boys that um, in, in, in a really interesting way, the school... Um, turned to a curriculum that was culturally irrelevant. This is something that the boys, you know, constantly told me had so little to do with their actual lives outside of the school. Um, but over time they came to embrace Latin because they saw it as their ticket to, mm-hmm. um, uh, to success. And, you know, students here told me that their middle schools taught them much more about black history than Northside Academy. And, um, but the school was really committed to, um, to Latin, and as I describe in the book, to, to sort of um, developing respectable young men who had disciplined minds and disciplined bodies. Um, while at Perry High School, um, you know, lacking a Latin curriculum, um, the school is much um, sort of more attuned to offering culturally uh, relevant Uh, curricula and one actually that in some cases rejected a respectability politics where, um, you know, teachers um, were trying to keep it real with the young men and, um, you know, really wasn't, we really weren't trying to promote the idea that, um, you know, respectability was their ticket to success. Um, And so uh, the academic uh, curricula took on really different forms at, at, at the two, at the two schools.
0: So a word that comes up a lot in your book is the word resilience. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that for us.
1: The book in in part is, is, is trying to do is, is to say that, you know, in, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of really great and important work, um, sort of promoting the idea of resilience Mm -hmm. in, um, public education, um, and a close, uh, um, a, a concept that, that's, that's, um, Mm -hmm. similar to resilience is grit. It's probably, it's, it's the more, the controversial version. Um, and the idea here is that, you know, if, if students can just learn to change themselves, then, um, that'll result in positive outcomes later in life. And, and so, um, things like uh, delaying gratification, being optimistic, persevering—you um, know, learning to beat the odds. That if, if, if you learn to develop these skills now and change yourself, these sort of soft or non-cognitive skills, that these are really the the ingredients for success. Um, and what I'm trying to do in the book is to say that you know we should be really um, worried about efforts to change the character of black youth, because there's a long history of uh, respectability politics, which, um, you know, has has just proved divisive in in black communities and in um, educating black um, kids. Um, And so, you know, I I think my, my book in part is just trying to challenge what I see as kind of endorsements of all boys education uh, for black and also for Latino boys, um, as uh, potentially a good thing because they build resilient kids. And um, um, I think that we should be skeptical of those endorsements because a lot of work on resilient black youth really are focusing just on gifted and academically oriented black youth. And it's a really sort of specific cross section of black youth, and there's just great variability among. This population um, and that instead of promoting things like individual resilience what we need instead um, um, is just ways of sort of supporting um, a collective resilience in in black communities Um, and so you know at the beginning of the book i'd say resilience is in in some ways is really important because it shows that black youth are empowered change agents in their own schooling, but I think the the bigger story, uh, the story we need to be concerned with, um, is the story of respectability and not and not resilience.
0: So I want to make sure we get to chapter five. So. Here, you subtitle that chapter, The Making of Black Men, and you talk specifically about this idea of what's called adultification of black boys, and you tie it to some other recent sociological work. So, I was hoping you could explain more what that concept means and then also how you saw it playing out in your research. Yeah,
1: so, um, adultification that term comes from, um, Ann Arnett Ferguson's, um, just incredible book, uh, Bad Boys. Um, and the idea here is that uh, Black boys are treated by school officials and other authority figures um, as adults. They're sort of perceived as adults, as being dangerous, um, as not being childlike. And if they're viewed in uh, in these ways, are deserving of adult forms of, of punishment. It's so in the last uh, empirical chapter of the book, I show that the boys of the two schools are kind of groomed into becoming different kinds of men. Uh, as I shared earlier, uh, at Perry high school, um, you know, because these were a lot of boys that were not destined for college and in many cases had no aspirations of attending college. Um, the school was trying to promote this idea of the boys being what I call heroic family men. And these are men who, these are boys who, needed to survive and take care of themselves now because they would one day be tasked with taking over and leading their own community. They needed to be able to take care of their sons and daughters if they had children and to take care of, to being a good provider for their families. Um, And in speaking with a lot of, um, interviewing a lot of the boys, they also promoted a vision of the good life. And this was just a really kind of modest view of an adult life where they would be financially responsible, um, and stable and had a family, but these weren't really grand aspirations of being, you know, um, uh, you know, leaders in a global economy or anything like that, but they just wanted to have, um, you know, uh, a stable future where they could just, uh, not be bothered by the outside world. Um, and at, uh, Northside Academy, because, you know, this was a school that was trying to groom, as I saw it, you know, a talent, a 10th of source. These were, uh, the exceptional men in the community and they would be mm-hmm. come what I called ambitious entrepreneurs. Um, and these are, you know, boys and eventually men who were self-reliant, who were leaders who were on the cutting edges of their industries. Um, and they would uh, had no responsibility to come back and look after their community. Um, um, and instead, the community was exactly what um, was a roadblock to their success. And so they are, um, unlike at Perry High School where the boys were tasked with sticking around their community at Northside Academy, the boys were tracked um, out of their community. And I think that proved uh, troubling for a lot of the boys who you know had learned to kind of code switch and um, you know the school is asking them to kind of reject their peers back at home but these were a lot of boys who really cared about um, their friends back at home who are not Northside students and so there's you know a lot of sort of conflicting emotions there that I try to draw in the book um, but uh, to, and so at, at Northside Academy, these boys were becoming ambitious entrepreneurs who eventually would leave um, the community and would be, um, you know, in, 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 in according to the school's motto, sort of they would be, um, uh, they're solely responsible for their own future fortunes. And so fortune here was both sort of their fate, but also I think tied to kind of being um, very financially successful Um, one day.
0: So in the conclusion, you turn your eye to the institutional level differences in general, but also between these two schools, particularly, can you give the listeners your sort of big takeaways from this work?
1: Yeah. um, So the first is, I think I'm hoping uh, readers will um, sort of understand how we can use all boys education to understand Black respectability politics today and, and how um, Black respectability politics, um, there's both peril and matters of survival behind that. Um, and with survival, I think, you know, I, I um, if, uh, if there's anything, I think I could, I could have done a much stronger, much better job in my book of sort of showing how um, a respectability of politics um is a survival strategy there. I think, um, you know, there's great work by uh, Nora Gross, for example, um, who's shown that, um, you know, Black youth are kind of acutely aware of media representations that drive a wedge between respectable and deviant images of Black identity. And they're told that, you know, if you want to survive, then you need to be able to, you, you need to dress a certain way. You need to, to really make sure that you look like you are, middle class in that you are not, um, you know, a thug, for example. And so in in, in a really, I think, important way is uh, respectability politics is, is a survival strategy. It's, um, as some people have called it, it's sort of a form of black armor. And I think in an era of police brutality and mass incarceration, I mean, these are really important concerns. Um, but respectability politics is also um a matter of peril Um, and i think that um while supporters of all boys education um you know i think ostensibly these are schools that should be um supporting um all boys but instead um as i saw it, you know they're they're really just targeting um -hmm. the most exceptional boys who have the best chance of making it out of the community um, and this drives a wedge between upwardly mobile black, respectable black uh, boys, and their more at risk peers. And these are young men who are more likely to be involved um, in the criminal justice system, criminal justice system and the informal economy. And so all boys schools are just um, sort of aggravating a black respectability, black respectability politics Um of that uh, that's taken on a new life I think in, in an era of neoliberalism um, and uh, the second I think big takeaway is that um, you know I'm, I'm I, I don't th- the book is not at all an endorsement of the schools um, but I think that I, I was trying to highlight ways that um, you know um, uh, the schools were, were promoting positive forms of behavior, the Northside Academy, for example, um, although it was a very strict school, um, uh, it, it sort of promoted diverse ways of being boys. And, and so, you know, at these weekly, these raucous weekly assemblies, um, boys who took, who participate in drama and dance, um, you know, were, you um, were applauded alongside boys on the basketball team. And so the idea here is that in a really restrictive environment, uh, paradoxically, that boys are able to um, be their true selves, and I think there's something really important behind that and and I hope um, that schools can continue to promote different ways of being boys without always um, idolizing sports, for example. and uh, at uh, Perry High School, uh, the school was rejecting, I think, respectability politics. And, and um, I think that's, that's that's a really big takeaway uh, from the book. Um, and then just to wrap up here, I, I think um, if the schools, as I argue in the book, are really um, sort of obsessed even with this notion of um, racial uplift and a talent attempt ideology that... Um, we we should thaw these notions associated with Du Bois and instead take up what he called, um, an abolition democracy, which is just the idea that, um, you know, we need collective mobilization that challenges white dominance across social spheres from education to healthcare and so on. Um, and here I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really asking schools to, um, uh, to consider how they, they sort of overemphasize competition and self-reliance at the expense of sort of promoting, uh, the greater collective good within their communities. Um, and, you know, I, I, find a lot of, um, uh, good being done in radical movements and radical youth movements, including Black Lives Matter, which really, um, um, has rejected a respectability politics. Um, and I think that's the first step towards, um, uh, towards all boys schools that will be much more inclusive and progressive um, and less exclusionary. Um, and I think, yeah. And so those are my, my two main takeaways from uh, from the book.
0: So today we've been talking to Frieden Bluma-Or about his new book, Black Boys Apart, Racial Uplift and Respectability in all male Public Schools. So what are you working on now, Frieden?
1: Um, yeah, so um, I am uh, sort of embarking on two uh, projects that build on um, ideas I developed in the book. Um, and the first is just um, uh, to and, and kind of investigating... Um, some of Du Bois' early work on education and how that links to um, his work on uh, religion. And I see just a really interesting relationship between his work on um, education, Black education, and the Black church. Um, And the second project uh, is just to um, explore uh, the relationship between whiteness and masculinity. Um, and I'm trying to just bridge insights from the sociology of race and the sociology of gender, which aren't always in conversation with one another, um, to help sort of create more tools for scholars to understand how you know masculinity and whiteness combine today in ways that um that do a lot of harm.
0: Great. Well if any of those turn into books, you know where to find (laughs) us. So thank you again for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. This has been really great, Sarah.